1: The year was 1990. Republican incumbent North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms was polling behind his black Democratic challenger, a man named Harvey Gantt. It was a surprisingly competitive election, so Helms called in the political consultants, who in turn helped the Helms campaign figure out a way to fight back. And this is what they came up with, this ad.
0: You needed that job, and you were the best qualified. But they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. For racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms.
1: That ad... With the white hands holding the rejection letter, as the narrator intones, you were a better candidate than the minority guy that they went with. Can you feel the injustice of it all? That ad was exactly what Senator Jesse Helms needed. He won re-election to a fourth term in the Senate, 54 to 46 percent. That strategy worked. It worked well. Making Gantt the face of affirmative action, a racial quota system that kept whites at a disadvantage in favor of less qualified minorities. That was potent stuff—the race-baiting and the zero-sum politics. It moved people because it angered them. It made them believe the system was rigged against them and in favor of someone else. It was politically explosive, and that was 33 years ago. But the strategy to undermine affirmative action, a program to combat discrimination and correct centuries of racial injustice, the war against all that, it it started well before Jesse Helms. This is what was happening 14 years before that.
0: Certainly no one of us would challenge government's right and its responsibility to eliminate discrimination in hiring or education. But in its zeal to accomplish this worthy purpose, Government orders what is in effect a quota system, both in hiring and in education. They don't call it a quota system. It's an affirmative action program. Now, if you happen to belong to an ethnic group not recognized by the federal government as entitled to special treatment, you're a victim of reverse discrimination. Now, I'd like to have the opportunity to put an end to this federal distortion of the principle of equal rights.
1: That was presidential candidate Ronald Reagan using the issue of affirmative action to critique President Gerald Ford and his Democratic rival, Jimmy Carter. Now, Reagan didn't win the presidency. He didn't even make it past the primaries. But, oh boy, did he get his chance to chip away at what he called the federal distortion of the principle of equal rights when he won the presidency in 1980. And when Reagan took office, he found the perfect person to chip away at affirmative action. He put that man, his perfect candidate, in charge of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, the branch of the Justice Department that is supposed to bring cases about workplace discrimination and hiring and harassment. And the man's name was Clarence Thomas. He was a young black lawyer who had graduated from Yale Law School just eight years before Reagan nominated him. And this is how one of that man's classmates describes Clarence Thomas's feelings about affirmative action. Clarence Thomas, by the way, someone who had attended schools and universities that were specifically trying to increase the number of minority students in their student bodies. This is how Clarence Thomas felt about affirmative action.
2: He believed that people assumed he was there as a, as a uh, beneficiary of affirmative action and it grated on him.
3: He has this feeling of, oh, I'm around these white students who he senses question his presence at Yale. How is it that you, not just you, Clarence Thomas, but you, all you black students are here? Is it because of merit or is it because of affirmative action? He said he would keep stacks of rejection letters he had gotten from law firms. Even when he was like a Supreme Court justice, he had these letters just to sort of remind him of those, again, this feeling of rejection by kind of the elite law
0: firms.
1: Clarence Thomas blamed Yale's affirmative action policies in the 1970s for his own trouble finding a job after graduation. He even stuck a 15-cent sticker from a cigar package on the back of his Yale diploma because apparently that's how much he thought it was worth. And Clarence Thomas is the guy Reagan picked to head up the office that was in charge of taking on affirmative action-related cases. With Clarence Thomas as EEOC chair and William Bradford Reynolds as the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, the Reagan DOJ pursued cases that sought to ban affirmative action policies. And Thomas, for his part, stopped bringing class action lawsuits to enforce affirmative action hiring programs. That pattern earned Clarence Thomas a public admonishment from the NAACP. But in the Reagan Justice Department, it was a different story. It earned him praise. During a ceremony held in September of 1985 to reappoint Clarence Thomas as the head of the EEOC, Thomas was flanked by Attorney General Edward Neese and Senator Strom Thurmond, the South Carolina segregationist, as well as Bradford Reynolds, who lauded Thomas as the epitome of the right kind of affirmative action working the right way. Bradford Reynolds called Thomas's reappointment a proud moment. But Thomas wasn't alone in the fight against affirmative action. Also in Reagan's Justice Department at the same time was a young man named John Roberts— As a young White House lawyer, Roberts helped the Justice Department make arguments against any government use of race as a basis for hiring and diversifying institutions. And he carried those beliefs with him throughout his 30s when he became the deputy solicitor general in the George H.W. Bush administration. And those ideas about color blindness would become a key feature of John Roberts' legal career. And then in 1991, Clarence Thomas was sworn in as a Supreme Court justice. In 2005, it was John Roberts' turn. And together, these two men, these two justices, have made ending race consciousness in American law, whether in affirmative action or in voting rights, they have made that one of the central causes of the court.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court today ended its 2007 term with a history-making ruling. The court made it much tougher for school districts to control the mix of children in American classrooms based on race. The court said deciding on a student body in that way is not allowed under the Constitution.
1: So they tried in 2007 and they tried again in 2013 and then again in 2014. But today, today they succeeded. Roberts and Thomas, joined by the court's four other conservative justices, voted to effectively strike down race-conscious admissions. In a 6-3 ruling, the Supreme Court found race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina—they found them unconstitutional—in violation of the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment. Delivering the majority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, The Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives, warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. We have never permitted admissions programs to work in that way, and we will not do so today. In a fiery dissent, the court's newest justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, called today's ruling a tragedy for us all. With let-them-eat-cake-obliviousness, she wrote, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. If the colleges of this country are required to ignore a thing that matters, it will not just go away. It will take longer for racism to leave us. And ultimately, ignoring race just makes it matter more. <clears throat> Joining us now to discuss are Melissa Murray, MSNBC legal analyst and former law clerk to Justice Sotomayor. <laughs> Excuse me, ladies. And Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate and host of the Amicus podcast. <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, it's been there's a lot to talk about, ladies. Um, Melissa, let me start with you. The reason we went back through the history of the rights war against affirmative action is because this is a signal moment. And I think for a lot of people, this is similar to what happened with Dobbs, a victory for the right that they have been wanting for decades that will restructure American society. Um, I know we expected it, but what are your initial thoughts about what has happened today?
4: So I don't think it's hyperbolic, Alex, to put it in that context. Affirmative action, perhaps more than any other race-conscious measure, has been a means of actually promoting the social mobility of those who historically had been excluded from major institutions in American life, whether it was institutions of employment or higher education. It has been a means by which those who were left behind consciously were able to come back in and advance in society and function as equal citizens. The right has been on the table of affirmative action since the very beginning. It was called reverse discrimination. It has been targeted from the very start. Nobody on the right has wanted it. And now they've finally gotten what they wanted. And you're exactly right to compare it to Dobbs. We didn't talk about this in the opening package, but the court effectively overruled an existing precedent, 2003's Grutter versus Bollinger, in which the court said that the limited and holistic use of race was permissible in the context of college higher education admissions in order to foster a diverse classroom environment. It didn't mean that race was a tipping point. It didn't mean that race was determinative. It didn't mean that race was a preference. It meant that race, along with a multitude of other factors, could be considered. And the chief justice, very disingenuously in this opinion, seems to suggest that any minority student who is admitted to one of these schools got there because of race, when, in fact, It was a lot of different factors that went into this. Grades, test scores, work experience, and race may have played a part of it. By the time they get to those points, these students are incredibly qualified. And he completely undersold that, stereotyping (coughs) them even as he assailed affirmative action for promoting stereotypes. Dahlia,
1: um, to the Dobbs uh, parallel, it's also at odds with public opinion, where the public is on this. Look at the polling. I think 57 percent of of the public opposed the court's overturning of Roe and thought affirmative action should continue. ABA, the AP in May of this year, 63 percent of the public believes that supporting affirmative action in colleges is a good thing. I mean, the Am I am I wrong to to say that this feels like a hangover of the civil rights era? They couldn't win on civil rights. Affirmative action became the hobby horse in the late 70s and 80s. And now they issue a death knell in the same way that the women's liberation movement of the 70s, they couldn't stop. They make abortion their hobby horse to curtail a woman's right to bodily autonomy. And they have this pyrrhic victory with
5: Dobbs. It feels so familiar to Dobbs in some sense, Alex, uh, because, and you know, I think it's worth lingering for a moment. At least in Dobbs, they were honest enough to say we are overturning Roe v. Wade, it's not even clear from the majority opinion, although it functionally, I think Melissa's exactly right, it functionally overturns, you know, Bakke and Grutter and Fisher and all of the affirmative action cases. It doesn't say it. And uh, Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, calls out the chief, you know, essentially saying, you can't say you're not overturning it when you're overturning it. There's a level of disingenuousness. But I think the other thing that's really shocking and that feels familiar from Dobbs is this very cynical use of this long, amazingly important history of civil rights victories that culminates in some sense with Brown v. Board, and much like Justice Alito cites Brown in Dobbs to somehow argue that he's in a long line of cases where you overturn uh, abhorrent precedent again today. The majority does this double troll where it's not enough to do away with, you know, 50 years of affirmative action doctrine, but somehow lashes itself to the to Brown and its progeny, to the 14th Amendment itself, to the Reconstruction era project of trying to create equality and says, oh, this all follows On from that, to not even have the courage to say, this has nothing to do with civil rights. We're not civil rights warriors. We are fundamentally undermining the civil rights project, the project of equality. And to instead say, if we take ground to mean what it meant, then this follows logically from that. It's such cynical gaslighting, Alex, that it almost makes it a double whammy to have to sit there and listen to them say that this is a victory for civil rights and for colorblind
1: well, and I feel like it's kind of part of the the arsenal of the right, which is to quote Martin Luther King as you promote white nationalism, <laughs> but I, I was struck to talk about hypocrisy about two parts of of robert 's opinion the, mili- the the carve out mm-hmm. for affirmative action programs in military academies. Which, which, which Robert says, no military academy is a party to these cases, however, and none of the courts below address the propriety of race-based admission systems in that context. This opinion also does not address the issue in light of the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present. I mean, first of all, he's acknowledging what the military has said along, which many people say, which is that diversity is paramount to having a functioning society, but also a functioning business or a great college or university, right? And he acknowledges that that's okay for the military, but that's not okay for other areas of American life. The cynicism of that, when we're talking about brown and black people, it's okay to ship them off to war, but don't, as Ketanji Brown Jackson said in her opinion, put them in the boardroom.
4: Well, again, John Roberts has been prosecuting the case against affirmative action for some time. He's had to mask it in yeah. a number of ways. I and mean, he's masked it a little bit this term with some SOPs to voting rights and whatnot. But at bottom, this is a conservative court. It continues to be a supermajority of conservative justices doing conservative things. And here, this whole nod to the military academies—the military academies are no different from other institutions of higher education. Colleges have ROTC programs that feed officers into our fighting force. The military has always been the most integrated institution in American life, and he knows that. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's going to sell here. He has a project that he wants to prosecute, and it's dismantling affirmative action slowly. He's on the jolly trolley. Clarence Thomas is on the Acela, wants to get there faster. He's the one who's saying, oh, we are actually overruling Grutter versus Bollinger. And it's the two women of color on the court who are stepping up to say, not on our watch. You're not going to invoke Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American to sit on the Supreme Court and say that he would have favored colorblindness. He was the one who litigated Brown, the decision that you were absolutely perverting in service of this completely revanchist mission to overrule affirmative action and roll back the 20th century.
1: Um, Dahlia, the revanchism, the hypocrisy, the gaslighting, the really bad opinion-making and logic of allowing colleges to accept application essays that gesture towards race, but cannot explicitly use them as a selling point. I mean, we should talk about this, because among the other carve-outs that are in this, Roberts suggests that, you know, people who are applying to college can talk about race insofar as it helped create their identity, but they can't use it as an explicit means to gain entry to a university. It is so confounding, the logic there. I wonder if you could make sense of how and why this is part of Roberts' opinion.
5: Uh, no, it, it it's nonsensical. I mean, he simultaneously ends the opinion saying, you know, you can still kind of flip it in your essay and then goes on to say, but don't do anything with your essay program that undermines this uh, holding. So he's both trying to suck and blow on the sort of essay escape hatch. And again, you know, Justice Jackson, uh, Justice Sotomayor, call him out for it. I I think that there's a way in which, you know, I keep thinking that if you are an applicant to uh, any university now, I think you're supposed to hint at your racial history and your identity the same way Donald Trump declassifies classified documents. If you sort of do it mind and hope that the colleges figure it out. I mean, that's clearly the, the, to the extent that there's an escape hatch here, I guess that's it. But again, I just think to Melissa's point, the utter cynicism of saying, you know, that this is what, you know, the, the, uh, reconstruction amendments that the radical abolitionists who wrote those amendments were trying to do that Congress that passed clearly race conscious remedial efforts and the entire history, Justice Jackson's uh, uh, minority uh, uh, dissenting opinion here is a masterclass yeah. on, you know, the history of racism, redlining, the GI Bill, you know, getting loans, sharecropping, it's all in there. And the idea that all of that just goes away, poof, because if you somehow hint in your essay, That that is part of your story. It can be considered is so profoundly insulting. That it almost doesn't bear taking seriously.
1: Yeah. I, I am also just struck about how much, by how much of this is so deeply personal for, for Clarence Thomas. You know, there's a reason we went through his history and his distaste for affirmative action as it personally intersects with his own story, the, the sense of grievance he has and how it's the opposite of what Supreme Court justices are supposed to do, make the personal, the national. And, and yet it seems that that's exactly what he's done.
4: Well, I mean, who hurt you, Boo? is really the bottom line here. I mean, this is a man who's been very clear. He believes affirmative action is stigmatizing. He says nothing of the fact that affirmative action programs got him into the seminary and then allowed him to enter Holy Cross, from which he graduated, and then allowed him to graduate from Yale Law School, which put him in a prime position where he could be noticed by John Danforth, could go to Missouri to work for Danforth, and then could be propelled to the center of conservative politics in Washington, D.C. He completely misses the fact that when George H.W. Bush was looking for a replacement for Thurgood Marshall, the first black person to serve on the Supreme Court, there weren't a lot of black conservatives. But Clarence Thomas, was there and he was identified because he was a black conservative, that's affirmative action. And if he doesn't understand how he's there because of this policy and he has all of these questions about the stigmatizing effects of it, you're still in the Supreme Court. You're still making policy for everyone. You're basically allowing your own personal issues around your life story and your biography to basically shape policy for all of the rest of us. And again, I'm so glad that the women of color on this court were here to call him out. Everybody
1: who has not read Ketanji Brown-Jackson's opinion should go read it. It is a masterclass. It should be a pamphlet. Melissa Murray and Dahlia Lithwick, thank you both for being here. I really appreciate your insight and and thoughts today, this this big day in in American courts. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including the shockwaves that could result from today's ruling. Right-wing groups are already promising a, quote, free-for-all when it comes to challenging diversity initiatives. And later, look who's talking now. New reporting that a key figure in Trump's re-election campaign has been meeting with the special counsel's prosecutors. <clears throat> well, it's a development that has apparently blindsided the former president's inner circle. We'll have more on that just ahead.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet
1: The decision by the Supreme Court to end affirmative action will have direct legal impact on admissions at colleges and universities across the country, but it also has far-reaching implications for diversity, equity and inclusion across the private sector. And it could be a boon for conservative groups who have made dismantling corporate diversity initiatives their their common cause. For the past several months, America First Legal, a conservative group led by former Trump advisor Stephen Miller, that group has been filing civil rights complaints with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission against private sector companies like Starbucks and McDonald's and Alaska Airlines for their efforts to increase diversity in their workforces. Two other conservative groups are challenging a rule approved by the SEC that requires the Nasdaq Stock Exchange to publicly disclose the diversity of their boards and to mandate two diverse directors. A ruling on that is pending before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Will Hild, who leads the right-wing advocacy group Consumers Consumers Research, he was eagerly awaiting today's Supreme Court decision, and he told The Washington Post that it, quote, will put the wind in the sails of groups like ours who want to get the woke, racially-based hiring and promotion schemes out of corporate America. Hilde also called the legal precedents that allowed race-conscious admissions a fig leaf for the private sector's diversity initiatives. Quote, once that goes away, it is going to be a free-for-all on pushing back against that. Joining us now is Janae Nelson, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Janae, thanks for being here. I'm I'm sorry that you have to be here to talk about this, because I do think this is a very dark day for people who care about a more equitable society. But first, let me get your thoughts on what this does to the broader movement that seems to have some wind in its sails, to dismantle the progress we've made as a society on having more inclusive workplaces, more inclusive schools, and generally a more inclusive society.
6: Well, what this... Decision does is largely up to so many other actors in the system and whether they will be cowed by this court's decision, whether the chilling effect that these extreme conservative groups want to spread actually takes root. We have some agency in this. Mm. Corporate America has a moral imperative. It has a business imperative to ensure that we continue to diversify the ranks of leadership in this country. We know that within 20 years, this will be a majority people of color country. We know that the consumer base will include more and more people of color. Our electorate will include more and more people of color. If we want to have a healthy functioning, multiracial democracy, we need to make sure that we are educating people together so that they can respect one another and learn about one another. And we need to make sure that we are hiring leaders and diversifying our decision makers in corporate America who can help us meet this new, evolving American democracy with some promise and hope as opposed to division and hate.
1: I get I mean, I I I agree with you in terms of, you know, we're Culture is where consumers are at, which is obviously where business is gonna be responsive. But you know, from a legal perspective, what are the what are the kind of you say we have opportunities, we have leverage. What where do you see that opportunity
6: and that leverage given what the Supreme Court did today? So first it's so mm-hmm. important to recognize what this decision does, who it impacts directly, and who it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we are talking about admissions processes between two institutions, Harvard and UNC. So every college and university needs to think about their admissions process and how similar to Harvard's and UNC's it is, or how different it is, and whether, based on the interpretation of that decision, their admissions process is legal or not. So that's the first step. And those are the only entities who really are directly implicated by this decision. This does not affect corporate America. It doesn't affect recruitment efforts. It doesn't affect DEI programs. It doesn't affect any of that. To the extent that it affects it at all, it means that we need to double down on doing those things. We need to actually embrace the ability to make sure that we all have an equal opportunity and recognize that it took over a decade to get this case to actually yield the result that it did today.
1: I got to ask, because you mentioned DEI, I mean, that is such—it is— that diversity, equity, inclusion has become a buzzword on the right, especially. They have their knives out for it. You hear what uh, advocates are saying. You know, it's all going to—it's dominoes. This is the first one to fall. DEI is next. You have lawsuits in various states about DEI and environmental, social, corporate responsibility measures. I mean, I I guess I wonder— Are we being are we being chicken littles about it or I mean, do you think do you think that the sort of social capital that these initiatives have and the desire to be more broadly inclusive in America, right, which is shared among a majority of Americans can outflank what will be a concerted legal effort on the part of the right to get the stuff dismantled?
6: Well, again, I think that if we sit back and watch it happen, it will. right? Right. But if we actually react and say these this is the democracy we want, this is the United States that we want to embrace. If we recognize that diversity is truly our strength, that it does make us safer, as President Biden said earlier today. We know that racist domestic terrorism is the number one national security threat in this nation. White supremacist, racist terrorism. So we have to find ways to make sure that those types of harmful ideologies don't continue to take root and become a galvanizing force mm-hmm. for evil in this country. And the only way to do that is to ensure that we're giving opportunity to everyone, that we are educating people, that we're not denying them truth and the truth about our history, the truth about the progress we've made, and that we have a society that has an open uh, welcoming of ideas and, and a variety of viewpoints. That's the America that we all want to see or that a majority of us do. But we cannot let this extreme but quite vociferous minority just eclipses the entire conversation.
1: Yeah, I, and, and that's the position I think Sonia Sotomayor, that another justice on the Supreme Court has taken, which is, you know, society's progress toward equality cannot be permanently halted. I do have to ask, because, the, you know, you point out, rightfully so, the immediate effects of this at places like UNC and Harvard and other colleges and universities, a lot of people have pointed out the implications for um, health among communities of color because of what this does to medical programs and medical school admissions. This seems like a very real, very tangible outcome here, that you are going to have potentially less candidates of color going to medical schools, which means less, fewer doctors of color, which has real, tangible metrics in terms of bad outcomes for communities of color. I think it is for marginalized—for um, example, for marginalized communities in North Carolina, um, Research shows that black physicians are more likely to accurately assess black patients' pain tolerance and treat them accordingly. For high-risk black newborns, having a black physician more than doubles the likelihood that that baby will live and not die. I mean, I don't think people understand how much diversity isn't just sort of an ideal, but it is an urgent need in terms of the basics of, for example, saving lives.
6: No, you're absolutely correct. The, the consequences of this could be absolutely devastating, but it's going to take real leadership on the, on the part of universities and colleges, admissions counselors, university presidents, because the Supreme Court did say in this opinion something really important that cannot be lost on us. It said that nothing in this opinion should be read as prohibiting an applicant from talking about their race and how it affects their lives. So it doesn't take the conversation of race off the table. It doesn't take the conversation of how race intersects with so many other factors in this world and affects people's lives and lived experiences. And it's going to be up to colleges and universities to take that information and still exercise their decision making in how they constitute a class of students who can learn from one another, who can enrich each other with different perspectives, and who can who can be the next generation of doctors and lawyers and <laughs> others who are going to lead society. That's absolutely essential because race continues to play a role in our society. That's an undeniable fact.
1: I know the NAACP has a legal defense fund, but perhaps they should have a college application essay
6: fund that people can donate directly to to help people write these things. We do have a scholarship from the legal defense fund um, has has always had it ever since we became separate from the NAACP as a as our separate legal arm. But we've maintained the scholarship portion because we believe in education. It's an outgrowth of the seminal case we won in 1954. Brown versus Board of Education, which the extreme majority in this court did such a disservice to today. And we have the ability to make sure that nothing further happens to that decision that really made us a multiracial democracy. We really weren't one until we ended segregation and began to integrate our society and hold up our constitutional ideals. Janae Nelson from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund,
1: thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We look forward to having you back to talk about how this is affecting us in the months to come. When we come back, we have new reporting today revealing that the investigation into the Trump's Trump documents case is still going. It is still going. And the special counsel is reportedly issuing new subpoenas. Does that mean more charges are coming down the pike? Stay with us.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation more popular than soft launching your boyfriend more popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post to be it's more popular than influencers see you in there
3: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2 drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: By now you are probably familiar with this unbelievable tape of Donald Trump appearing to show off classified documents at his New Jersey home.
5: He's in the papers. This was
2: done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can. Probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see.
6: Yeah, we'll have to we'll
0: try to less figure out right. a. a yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah, but. Uh, no, I can't, you know, but this is. Yeah, now, now we
6: have a problem. Isn't that
0: interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so. I'm look, we here and I have. a...
2: And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe
0: It's you. incredible, yeah. right? No. It, hey, bring it's
1: some uh, goats it. in, fine. please. Hey, bring some coax in. The thing never gets old. Trump has already tried to explain away that moment, saying it was just bravado and that he wasn't really showing off our nation's most highly kept secrets. But the coax tape was not the only instance in which prosecutors have alleged Trump was waving around classified documents in front of people who had no business looking at them. This is from special counsel Jack Smith's indictment. In August or September of 2021, when he was no longer president, Trump met in his office at the Bedminster Club with a representative of his political action committee. During the meeting, Trump commented that an ongoing military operation in country B was not going well. Trump showed the PAC representative a classified map of country B and told the PAC representative that he should not be showing the map to the PAC representative and to not get too close. The PAC representative did not have a security clearance or any need-to-know classified information about the military operation. So classified information being waved in front of a person with no clearance to see the classified information, just just don't get too close. Stay over there. Well, multiple news outlets are now reporting that the person Donald Trump was speaking to in that moment, the PAC representative with no security clearance, that person was a Trump political advisor named Susie Wiles. Ms. Wiles is one of Trump's top aides for his 2024 re-election campaign. She's someone who has stood by the former president through January 6th and his claims of a stolen election and all the rest of—so it. So Susie Wiles, probably a loyal Trump foot soldier, right? Maybe, but maybe not. <coughs> CNN is now reporting that Susie Wiles has met numerous times with the special counsel's investigators as part of their investigation and apparently, sources in Trump's inner circle tell CNN they were blindsided by the news. Susie Wiles is still a top advisor to Trump's presidential campaign, someone who likely still has regular access to Trump himself. But Trump World apparently did not know she was talking to the special counsel's office, so that could be a big problem for the Trump team going forward. And today, The New York Times has explosive new reporting suggesting that special counsel Jack Smith may not be done investigating that classified documents case. According to the Times, the grand jury in the classified documents case has issued more subpoenas for people to testify, despite the fact that the special counsel has already charged the former president and his valet valet, with 38 felony counts. As the Times reports, post-indictment investigations can result in additional charges against people who have already been accused of crimes in the case. The investigations can also be used to bring charges against new defendants. What could that mean for the people who have already been accused of crimes in this case, namely Donald Trump? And what does it mean for the people around him? We'll talk about that after the break. Three weeks ago, former President Donald Trump was charged with 37 criminal counts for unlawful retention of classified documents and for his efforts to obstruct the Justice Department from recovering secret materials. That on its own is a story of historic proportions, except... It might not be over yet. The New York Times is reporting today that a federal grand jury in Miami is still investigating the Mar-a-Lago case, and that in recent days, quote, the grand jury has issued subpoenas to a handful of people who are connected to the inquiry. Now, we don't know who received those subpoenas or what kind of information prosecutors are after, but post-indictment investigations can result in additional charges, including charges against new defendants. Well, now. Joining me now is Donya Perry, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Danya, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here tonight and helping me, um, me as well as everybody else understand exactly what the implications are of the special counsel's investigation continuing forward with new subpoenas. Is that as interesting to you as it is to the rest of us?
2: it's it's interesting it's it's not atypical at all um once charges are initially filed in in original indictment the grand jury often continues its work and the filing of initial initial charges often has a way of dislodging witnesses and encouraging them essentially to come forward and it sounds like from reporting and from my experience and from common sense, that's exactly what's happening now that the grand jury is marching on, continuing with its work and speaking, um, issuing additional subpoenas and potentially hauling the witnesses in front of them. And we've we've heard about a big one today. Do you think so? Do you think it's inevitable that there are new indictments
1: coming? And how would this affect the broader timeline for the the, the indictments that we do know about?
2: It's certainly not inevitable in this case from the reporting and from the nature of the subpoenas that have been issued and and from what we are hearing about uh, this witness, this top campaign official that I know we'll talk about, it does sound to me likely that there will be superseding charges. Certainly, we've seen a number of charges for unlawful, willful retention of national defense information. And it seems to me like the next step here perhaps will be charges for having shared that information, which would be charges that obviously pack more of a punch in terms of jury appeal. And that also would really rebut any claim of accident or lack of intent or knowledge. So it it seems to me logical that that's what will follow, but certainly not (coughs) inevitable. Wait,
1: I you have so- me at superseding indictments here. So you're suggesting that there might be more charges for Donald Trump related to dissemination. That's the, the charge that the, the special, special counsel did not. There, there was no charge for dissemination, although that Bedminster tape certainly sounds like he's disseminating classified information to people that should not be looking at it. Is that I mean, is that
2: your suggestion there? I think that's the implication. That's my read from the reporting. and it it does sound like that would be the logical next step that would flow out of this investigation and out of the continued in- investigation by this grand jury. And it also sounds like this stage might be focusing on a different location on, on New Jersey. And there, there's also reporting that. And it also, again, as a matter of common sense, it may well be that special counsel is looking at filing additional charges, perhaps in that jurisdiction, and which would be the natural locus, I think, for this, this, these charges, just as, you know, some of some of these, these charges have been filed in in the Southern District of Florida, for retention and for obstruction. If there was, in fact, dissemination in the District of New Jersey, that would be the obvious place for the filing of either um, additional charges or it would have to be a a different indictment. So there are numerous possibilities. There could be a superseding indictment. There could be another indictment in a different district. Uh, Or there, of course, could be no additional charges at all um, but but it certainly sounds like from what we're hearing that there is the investigation continues the grand jury is looking at it and any investigation done by the Florida grand jury could of course be transferred over to to New Jersey
1: wow well th- those are a bevy of very um, explosive uh, well t- at least two of them are more explosive than the other but still uh, that's kind of headline news if that is what ends up happening. I do have to ask you about Susie Wiles, the uh, top Trump campaign advisor who is apparently speaking undercover or at least not to the knowledge of the Trump campaign. She is speaking to the special counsel. You sort of nodded towards that, but can you talk a little bit more about how unusual that is and your expectation about what the implications are for her work with Trump, given the fact that she may be a witness for the special counsel?
2: It's... it's not i mean it seemed to me quite obvious from the face of the indictment that there was a witness for that incident that second incident that you talked about in Bedminster in August or September of 2021 and it it sounds like she has an incentive to speak with the prosecutors and um, and a disincentive to lie to them. So it, it sounds like she is speaking with them and is, is being truthful. Otherwise, they would have to turn over what's known as Brady material or exculpatory material. It does not sound like that's what's happened. So it sounds like she is corroborating what is already in the four corners of this original indictment. And again, I, I am speculating, so I don't want to make headline news. I it, it just seems to me like a possible logical flow um, from what we are hearing and certainly exactly what the special counsel would be interested in looking at. So that's, you know, that, that, that's just my read from the breadcrumbs that we have. Well, we appreciate your read, Donya Perry. Thank you for making the
1: time.
3: That is our show for this evening. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar point on the all new top thrill Two. drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com.